Welcome to Project Comedy, a podcast by and for military veterans doing stand-up comedy, turning military banter into quality stand-up comedy acts. We might be veterans, but our comedy aims to get everybody laughing. We're more than aware of our limitations, and I'm not just talking sexually. We're open mic comedians of varying experience, and we have an amazing time doing so. But by getting out on the circuit, we get the delight of to occasionally work with professional comedians. And it's amazing to see a professional do his stuff. But what do the professionals think of us open micers? What common mistakes do they see us make? Do they have any tips for success? And is this really a place for a bunch of insane veterans on the circuit? To discuss that, I'm joined by Gabriel Murphy, professional Guinness taste tester. Jamie Johnson, professional Dungeons and Dragons dice assessor. Our newbie, Sean Morris, professional virgin. Sorry, that was supposed to read comedy virgin. And I'm Jay Saunders, professional dog warrior. How are you doing, boys? Well, how are you? And to ensure we have a professional viewpoint, we're delighted to be joined by a professional stand-up comedian, Nick Coppin. A man so funny, even let Gabe give him a hug before he performed at a kid's show. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Good, glad to had glad to be here, mate. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, you're more than welcome. Because of course, the first time we actually met in person was when we ended up doing the Brighton Fringe Festival uh, last mm-hmm. spring, which was a delight to meet you there. But um, for those of you that have not met you before, um, come on, give us a background on your career, how you started out, and how you ended up going to becoming a professional stand-up comic. Well, you see, I, I well actually before I go uh, starting this, and you know, when you say a man's so funny, he even let Gabe hug him. That wasn't because I'm funny. That was because I was afraid. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Were you like, afraid of performing? Well, that, no, or afraid I, was, of Gabe? I was afraid. I was not. Look, listen, when someone comes up to you, right, looking like <laughs> Zangief from Street Fighter Two, to give you a hug, you don't say no. Right? You just go, All right, I just. I'll just accept the hug and hope I've I've still got some well ribs that aren't broken afterwards. So yeah, that's nothing to do with being funny, just brave. <laughs> but to get back to your question, so well, here's the thing: when people ask about you know uh, my journey into comedy, how I get into comedy, what what I think there's well there's there's kind of like a, at least a couple of ways to answer it's like well i could tell you my thoughts on it i could tell you the process or it's like you know the whole kind of like the psychology behind it. it's a little bit different isn't it but i suppose i could i could start by telling you um why and yeah why i i decided to do it is, is that a good place yeah, to start absolutely okay well well <laughs> i i as a kid growing up um i i was always a fan of comic books um, Marvel superheroes being my my main, like Spider-Man, Hulk and all that business, The Thing, Fantastic Four, Avengers, but there's not so much into Batman and Superman, but I, I used to draw as well, and I too, I do drew, do drawings uh, a lot of the time. I still currently do caricatures for some people. Uh, it's a little bit of a sideline, but more if people want right. them. But yeah, so, yeah, I do. I, I, I thought you might have known that. I'll show you some caricatures at some point uh, of people that I've, I've done. Sometimes I do it for fun. Sometimes people, you know, that I do it for commissions or, you know, for a birthday present for someone. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I I, <clears throat> I did. I used to like just draw, you know, superheroes and stuff for fun. Um, so I always wanted to be a comic book artist. That was what I always wanted to do. Um, and then 
I start when you know when you do art in secondary school, and like, you know it's proper art, and mm-hmm. you've got to you know draw, do perspective, and then you you know you learn you know get taken to all these boring art galleries, and you know see these paintings. I remember one in I don't know somewhere on some school trip, and it was like it was an entirely black painting and it was called blue you know that sort of crap and you go oh this is boring get into all this boring art stuff and you know it's not as much fun as just drawing spider-man fighting the hulk and so i got a bit bored and disillusioned with the art like i didn't want to go to art college this was about 14 15 years old and uh and then at that point (laughs) this is where it gets a bit embarrassing i suppose now i i i was really a big fan uh i used i started watching neighbors when i was about 15 (laughs) right Here we go. And uh, and I, I was a big fan of Kylie Minogue. Oh, I loved Kylie Minogue. And you know, when, you, when you're teens or when you're growing up, you have these crushes on actresses and stuff. And uh, yeah. and then, you know, you're never going to meet them. And I know at that age, and I thought, you know what, you're never going to meet someone like Kylie Minogue unless you're an actor. So I wanted to be an actor. Like, you know, that's what I yeah, just yeah, yeah. wanted to do. But then again, again, drama school. Again, more boring crap, isn't it, yes. really? And, you know, like, you know, I wrote off to a couple of drama schools and then you talk to people. It's like, oh, you know, if if you were a chocolate in a box, which one would you be? And be a tree and all that rubbish. So I thought, well, I don't want to do that. And that's boring. Um, but still yeah. kind of want to be an actor. And also Eddie Murphy was I saw a couple of Eddie Murphy movies. He was quite big at the time. And mm. I thought and I found out that, you know, he got into acting like a lot of people when you look into it here yeah. and especially America through stand up comedy. So for all yeah. that could be something to be interested in. So I just looked into stand-up comedy, and this was like, you know, late teens. Um, again, I just didn't really know. I looked into it, but it was not something that I I really felt I could do at that time. I didn't have any experience of it. I looked in at Time Out at the comedy listings, made a couple of little phone calls, but it was years later uh, until I was like nearly 30 when I was, you know, started to go back to the idea of being sta- uh, a comedian. And then I met a couple of people because people would always say, oh, be a comedian, yeah, whatever. You know, you know what people are like, you know, yeah. destroy your confidence before you've got any. But, and then I was, I was just out with some workmates and I was talking to people at work. I used to work on London Underground. Uh, I was in the ticket office at the time at Baker Street Station after being booted out of being a signalman. <laughs> I was a signalman on well, the that, that <laughs> yeah. how how long ago it was, there was actually a fucking ticket office. Yeah. So yeah going go. back to when God was a boy. There you go, mate. There were a proper signal cabins and they booted me out of that. I could bore you senseless with all the technicals as to how I got booted out of the signal cabin. But I will tell you this, that um, when it was, my time was up as a signalman, I got inv- invited to the signal manager's office, John Staples, uh, his name and uh, he sat me down I'm thinking because my mom my, my, my dad and my brother were on on London Underground at the time so I thought yeah. oh, I'll bring shame on the family going to be sacked or whatever so I felt a little bit bad going down to see John Staples for my disciplinary hearing <laughs> after all my signalman cock-ups and he said to me uh, he said uh, all right Nick he said um, I just want you to know that this is the worst signalman's record I've seen in 30 years of being a manager <laughs> and, <laughs> And he said, you've got more cock-ups on your record than all of the other signalmen put together. <laughs> and there was about 50 Holy signalmen. There was about 50 signalmen. So I was, at that point, I was quite proud of myself. Well, I've achieved something here. Um, and then, so I was in the ticket office for a few years. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, chatting and hanging out with work colleagues. And, you know, then they start talking about, oh, you're quite funny. Have you ever thought of writing comedy, you know, and nights out and stuff? 
And I thought, funny enough, I have. And then that kind of gave me a bit of confidence to do it. And then I was going to do some comedy competitions and some gigs with some work colleagues that were interested, but they they never did it. And I just continued doing it. So I did, I think my first ever gig was at the Orchard Theatre in Dartford. It was like this competition held in conjunction with, it was between Hooch, the uh, Alco Pop at the time, yeah. and the Comedy Store, they sponsored it. And uh, it was more of an audition, really, as to whether to put you through to this thing. And they had these, like, ident adverts on the TV. And I didn't get through. Um, um, but it was the first gig I ever did. Weirdly, I had this material I was going to do about being on the tube as a signalman and cocking it up. But the last minute, I changed and did this weird sort of material about knighthoods and how, you know, there used to be all these big, powerful knights. And now there are, you know, people like, you know, Elton John and actors and all that. that yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they used to fight dragons. Now they just sing songs. But anyway, it's just that. It was a bit loose and it was well observed. But at the last in fairness, I would not follow Elton John into battle. <laughs> well, there you go. I you see. Say, it's, a, it's a lovely topic to go about because you think about where heraldry came from. It was who's going to fight most effectively for you. And you see who's just come out of the latest list of honours. You go, nah, nah, I've spent 23 years in the military. None of those fuckers are serving with me. They would be a bullet magnet. <laughs> it's, I'm not serving with any of them. Because I was in the army, I'd be like that. Well, who's going to pay me the most? <laughs> well there you go that makes sense you see and that, <laughs> I, I can get behind that but but yeah so it was anyway so last night I changed just and it didn't get through um, and then I got this gig um, the first ever gig I did proper gig in front of people was Belly Laughs in South Croydon run by this this American woman called Elizabeth Charbonneau she was like this tall skinny American lady very talk a bit like that American. she was quite good anyway I did this gig um, that I got booked in by, by by a friend. And then I was going to do the knighthood material, but then when she was comparing, there was a guy in the audience from, um, who worked, he was on a birthday do, he was a signalman for British Rail. So I thought, oh, I'll do this, I'll do the, the signalman material. And then yep. I went on uh, and I started talking about the, the being, oh, you're on, you're a signalman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I went, because I just started on something. I, I didn't, I wasn't really into the banter as much as I am now. And I said, oh, I used to be a signalman on London Underground. And then I couldn't think of any of the funny stories about that, particularly. Then I just yeah. went, yeah, but then I cocked up and, they, and now I'm in the ticket office. And everyone laughed. And I, it wasn't even, I didn't, it gave me great confidence, but I didn't even, you know, know or why I got the laugh. And a friend explained to me, it's because obviously Sigmund seen as an important job and now you're in the ticket office, but it just gave me the confidence. Anyway, I did the material about working on the tube. Um, that was my second gig. And then the third gig was at a place called, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a place called the Blue Nun, I think in like, London Bridge. And I had like a five minute spot. And the woman that booked it was, was uh, Ava... Ava Alexis, her name is now. She changed her surname. I was meant to do about a five-minute spot, and I did about 25 minutes, man. I got told off, man. Oh, Holy so crap. So bad. Did, they have, a, did yeah. they have a paid headliner as well? No, it was just all open micers, man. But crap one of, that. And I've seen now when I see like new acts like overrunning, because, again, you just lose – you get excited. Sometimes you lose track of time. And, yeah. and then I came off stage. I didn't know I did that long. Um, I was just having banter and having a great laugh in this little open mic gig. And then she, she was lovely, Ava. But then she just came up to me and goes, just so you, you did great there, but you did like 25 minutes. And she told me off but in a nice way. I think yeah. she was kind of proud that I managed to do 25 minutes, but at the same time, it was like naughty. Um, so that was yeah. my first three gigs. And then from there, it was just okay. I didn't do that many gigs in my first two or three years. 
I, I, I did those three in quick succession. Then I did like, it's like six, seven months sometimes between gigs. And, uh, and I thought, if I'm going to take this seriously, I've got a gig every night, you know, as much as I can. So I think yeah. 2001, I started kind of gigging as much as I can. And then, you know, the rest is history, as it were. <laughs> so that was my my sort of way into it, my thought process and and my first three gigs. I mean, the psychology of why we do it, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's strange you said that because when you said you ended up doing 25 minutes you know uh, on one of those first ones when you know my circuit down here in portsmouth which has recently died mm -hmm. um very e it was very easy for me to get to the 10 minute circuit because yeah. it was predominantly all open micros very few paid acts were down there there's only two venues in the area that actually have paid acts yeah um so as soon as I started doing tens, I fell in love with it. But then going back to do a five, mm. oh my God, I find it so difficult to do a five now. A 10 is a breeze. Yeah. But trying to do a five is an absolute nightmare, because especially if it's something like um, a gong show or a competition, and you know you get penalized if you're yeah. going over and what have you. Trying to make that type five that gets you noticed yeah, that's such a pigging challenge. When did you when did you know that you were actually being spotted on the circuit? When did you realize, um, yeah, people out there are actually starting to take me seriously? Um, it's hard to pinpoint any specific time, but I think it was when I mean I was going out every every like at least three or four times uh, a week. But also I had like I was doing shift work still at the time, so yeah. it was weird. So I used to work central London in the ticket office. Uh, and I'd see like acts on the new act circuit and, you know, other, other comedians, like, cause they'd go through the stations and sometimes they'd buy a ticket, like at Baker street, Kings cross embankment. And I was like, so frustrated. I was like late shift. And, and that's why in the end I had to go part-time. I went part-time. Um, uh, and then I could do, that was in the morning. So I could do gigs all in the evening, but then getting to gigs up in say Newcastle and back for an early shift was hard. So I had to work my way yeah. out of that. Um, but yeah, so I just, I would, but I would try and get out as much as I could. Uh, and to know when you get noticed, I think that obviously the um, the most the 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 first time you're going to notice you've been noticed is when people start to pay you, um, which mm -hmm. is why um, being quite chatty as an act, um, and I don't mind a bit of banter with the audience. You, you know, you can MC, and MCing is a good way to start getting paid because yeah. you know you're there all night and they they need MCs and you're not flitting off elsewhere, um, and they you know want a reliable MC that can chat to the crowd. So I think. Mirth Control, actually, um, they're still around now, but they used to have like loads of gigs all over the country and they're always looking for people to drive to gigs. I mean, it became a bit of a running joke. It's like Mirth Control and like they've got a list of gigs and, you know, we all oh, we need a London driver and all that. And, you know, there's going to be some poor sod having to drive three hours there and three hours back for do a 10 minute spot for no money. But you do that uh, and people do sort of. You know, I mean, Murph Control has had its knockers over the years. Who were misses? You know, for ex you know exploiting acts and and you know and reducing budgets, that sort of stuff. And I'm not saying they they didn't do any of that, um, but I know Jeff Whiting and I know Murph Control, and you know, I have to say that back then they were very instrumental in giving a lot of new acts great opportunities to go and gig up and down the country and to get their yeah. first paid gigs. And I think Murph Control may have been certainly my first regular paid gigs because, you know, they know you, you you can drive to gigs, you can MC gigs, and you can start to be able to open with 15, 20 minutes. 
And that's when you start to realize that, oh, actually, there's a, there's a chance for me here to get, you know, to become a professional. And you start getting paid by mirth control and other little gigs. Well, this is um, a back to the previous episode, because that episode we were talking about um, crowd work, which for Gabe is a natural thing for myself, Sean and, and, and for Jamie. It's something that terrifies the crap out of me. Was that something you naturally fell into? That was something you were comfortable doing? Or was it a conscious thing to go into the crowd work that enabled you to get the skill set to be an MC? That's just, I just, it was just, you know, you, I'm quite a chatty person. Uh, and obviously I worked um, in uh, on the stations on London Underground. And, you know, you've got to chat to people. That's a pub, you know, serving the public job. Um, so, yeah, I'm just naturally quite chatty anyway. Uh, and, and I mean, even when I do sets, I mean, nowadays I tend to kind of go, right, if I'm doing a set, you just kind of like more bang it out, don't you? But I still chat to people. You know, I'm naturally chatty. It's not like I kind of like, right, I've got to work out how to chat to people. It was kind of like more naturally what I did anyway. And, and that's why with Merv Control, I started getting a lot of paid like MC work. And even when I started doing jonglers, I did a few like 10 minute spots for jonglers, little tryout spots. And then they booked me to MC. And I was mostly MCing at jonglers because obviously jonglers, you've got two or 300 people like, you know, on birthdays and stag do's, you need someone that's going to chat to them and, you know, tell them what's going on and have a word to them if they're getting a bit boisterous. And so I got put into to MC a lot more so because I am quite a chatty person, you know. You've just given me a massive aside there um, mm. because those that have been watching comedy and taking comedy seriously for a while will know what eventually happened to jonglers. Yeah. Um, so it ended up with the financial problems and, and acts not getting paid and what have you. But do you think the circuit's changed since uh, jonglers has gone? Because of course there was this big chain all up and down the UK where you had a potential to get out there and perform. Whereas from my perspective where I'm sitting at the moment, I find it very hard to find new gigs. There aren't sort of those chain clubs that you can go I, I i want to get known by you because i know this will enable me to reach out to other venues in other cities has it changed since jonglers uh disappeared oh well, i would say definitely i mean there have been people like just a tonic took over some of the jonglers spaces and obviously if jonglers aren't around there's always audiences are looking for other comedy clubs um but yeah i'd say it changed massively because when you think about it um jonglers was they at the height of their powers they had 17 clubs all over mm -hmm. the country. Um, when I was doing, when I started doing it, there was 15 clubs. So I was doing jonglers regularly two or three times a month and they pay quite good money and they put you in a hotel and, and they, uh, you know, get free food and booze on the night. Stags and hens wanting to have their photo taken with you. It was a great laugh. And it was like a good weekend away. And the Christmas weeks was like a whole week of like a bit of extra money as well. But when you think about it, I mean, you've got to be pretty bulletproof to do jonglers. I mean, you know, you get people that are a bit more chatty, a little bit more character-based maybe, but you've got to be pretty bulletproof to do jonglers. And so you're looking at every act that does jonglers is pretty much a headline act at smaller gigs or yeah. other gigs or a good compare or support act. So if you've got now 15 clubs, they, they sort of like a few clubs went and a few more and then it sort of died and and they've sort of started up under a kind of rebranded slight thing with Kev Orkian, and they're doing something slightly different now. But if you think about the fact that you had four strong acts every week, every jonglers gig, 15 clubs around the country, now that's gone. Where are those acts going to go? I suppose they have to go and yeah. look at other gigs. So anyone that was headlining, say, a certain smaller gig or emceeing a smaller gig, they'd now not be doing that because the acts that are doing jonglers were doing it. Um, 
I mean, I was quite lucky in that when it started to go, and I <laughs> could tell you some stories about my interactions with them about the money, and I certainly didn't take uh, any crap from them uh, after a little while anyway. Um, uh, and I can, <laughs> I can tell you where my, I think what really did it, they owed me about two and a half grand at one point. And then uh, I, did, I know, and I did jonglers in Nottingham and that was a really tough one. Um, but I was booked for Bristol originally. Bristol's a nice one, right? So I did right. this uh, and then I got the email um, saying, oh, are you okay for jonglers? And I said, yeah, Bristol, right? They went, oh no, Nottingham. And I was like, good thing I asked, isn't it really? So I did Bloody this horrible, yeah. yeah, and it used to be really tough anyway, but then they had it in this Oceana, big nightclub, and it was it was a horrible gig, right? So Friday night, it was like drunk, heckling, and it was it was like it was manageable, but it was quite horrible, right? So I did this tweet, and I you know, at Jonglers type thing, and it was just something. All I said was, um, "Shame I wasn't at Bristol because it's a lot nicer than Nottingham." And Nottingham was quite, you know tough or whatever right they get a phone call from the woman who owned the jonglers brand at that time when she got the name back oh the the the, the people at jonglers that the, they think you're having a go at the managers and the show wasn't run properly blah 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 and i was like no i'm not having a go at them i'm just saying i prefer to have done bristol because it's a nicer gig right but yeah. the thing with me that what really resonated with me is everyone's chasing jonglers for money right and they're being ignored a lot of the time then i get yeah. a phone call from jonglers right having a go at me about a tweet. And I'm like, you cheeky bastards. Yeah. It's like, how dare you ring me about a tweet? How about you ring me about my two and a half grand? How about that? Exactly. Exactly. You know, anyway, at that point, it was like, I had one more in, in Portsmouth, actually. But I had one more in Portsmouth, did that. And I, I had a bit of a go at them about the money. And then they started to pay me. It's a weird story that will bore you senseless. But yeah, in the end, I thought I'm not doing that anymore. But what I was getting at was that, so I, I could really get a bit more because people were a bit worried oh i won't get any jonglers gigs and you know well what gigs that aren't paying you you know you'd, it's better off doing a gig for 50 or 100 quid cash that you're actually getting the money than 250 that you're not um but i'd already started doing things like edinburgh fringe and and uh, australia comedy festivals so when jonglers failed i didn't yep. really have to give too much of a toss about chasing it up it was a big dent in my earnings. Of course it was. But then so was um, going part-time in London Underground, leaving London Underground. This was just another little, I don't know, I suppose, well, I say backward step. I didn't take the step as such. It was kind of forced upon me, but it was like, okay, so now I've lost, I don't know, you know, 750 or grand a month from doing jonglers, but I've got Edinburgh Fringe to do. I've got Brighton Fringe to do. Whereas a lot of people that did jonglers at the time, that was their that was their career almost. They'd sort of got to jungle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't really have, they had to really worry about it. Whereas luckily I didn't have to worry about that. So all good. And then you decided to put another string to your bow because um, our, our great mate, the Enable Project Comedy to happen, Jay Sodegar. I mean, he uh, he's taught all of us, you know, to get to where we are at the moment. But you too, you also teach stand-up comedy as well, don't you? What do you, what do you get out of teaching stand-up comedy? Well, it's fun, actually. I mean, I would say the first, obviously a few extra quid here and there, but it's mostly the fun. And it's something you, you, I can do during the day, isn't it? So um, it's it doesn't really impact on the gigs. But, I mean, I first did a, a workshop. Uh, it was in Darwin, weirdly enough, um, because a friend of, of a friend who was actually in Darwin at the time, I just started doing comedy. Um, she was like, they were talking about like doing workshops and getting funding from the Northern Territory Arts, whatever, right? And, um, and so this person got in touch with me and said, do you want to do um, some workshops with us? Three days of workshops and we'll pay you to come to Darwin or pay you this, whatever. And I was like, yeah, why not? Give it a go. And actually I went to one of the Laughing Horse 
things. Only one of the days and spoke to Lewis Bryan, who was doing it at the time. Just to, you know, I mean, I know comedy. I know what how doing it, but passing that information on, it's yeah. different, isn't it? Yeah, so I'll yeah, yeah. look at what they do. Um, and then, so I did these three days of, you know, some of the stuff that you did on the course with Jay, um, but lots of different stuff, stories and all that. And that was the first time I did a workshop. But that was just a one-off thing because uh, I was in Australia and I got flown to Darwin to do it. Um, and then, because I just thought, well, workshops and teaching people aren't necessarily, my, it's not my thing. Because um, uh, I always thought if people want to get into comedy, they'll find their way into it somehow. Um, and so, but then I was at the Edinburgh Fringe um, and Jay and Jojo Sutherland, who normally do the Laughing Horse courses, couldn't do them. Uh, so Alex mm-hmm. Petty at Laughing Horse said, oh, well, will you do three courses the last week of Edinburgh? Which initially I thought, well, I've done kind of workshops before and I kind of know how they're done. But also I'm done, I was that year, I was doing like six or seven shows every day of the Fringe, like kids shows. Bloody hell. And then often, I know, right? And it's like up at 10 in the morning, 10.30, off to do a kid show, Mm. then another show, then another show. And then come midnight, that's finally finished, have a couple of drinks, go to bed. But then I said to Alex, so in my head, I'm like, oh, well, I'm not sure. And Alex was like, oh, well, this is what you'll get for it. And blah. I was like, all right, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to know that you're a whore. (laughs) It's like, not really want to do it. I'm knackered, but get money? All right. Um, (laughs) And, Excuse and, me um, while I spread my legs. Exactly. <laughs> there you go, mate. There you go. Now we're getting into the consent. Yeah, we're getting into your thing now, aren't we? But uh, anyway, so um, See, girls, girls get early fans, and we get comedy courses. Basically, yeah. That's it, yeah. <laughs> They're even taking over football now. So anyway, <laughs> oh, and they've they still got over fat, uh, only fans. Anyway, so. <laughs> So, but what it was, it wasn't necessarily, it was obviously, it was about helping Alex out as well. And, you know, Jay couldn't do it. Jojo couldn't do it. Um, so I said, okay. But but the thing with it was, because the courses were like 10 until 2. So I had to get someone else to cover me at one of the kids shows that I was doing. Luckily, Dave Chawner works with me on that. But I get someone else to cover me. But then I had to be up at like half eight in the morning. Now, we're two and a half, three weeks into the fringe. Yeah. Six, seven shows a day of peeling up out of bed, exactly at like 10, half 10. And now I've got to get up at like 8.30. And that year, I had a really, really bad ankle and I was hobbling everywhere because I've done my ankle in and I didn't have any time to heal because I'm walking everywhere. So I'm hobbling to the courses at 8.30 in the morning. Knackered, man. And um, But then I did these three courses and, and even I didn't quite really get, you know, Laughing Horse teaches their course a certain way. I would do my workshops a certain way. So I did what I, I did, and I spoke to Jay about it. And I thought, actually, it was quite fun. Even though I was knackered, I was, it, was, I was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then just to kind of, like, see how Jay and other people do it, I sat in with a couple of courses with him back in London, and we had a good laugh, me and Jay. We had a, a really, you know, good time in the breaks. we go for our coffees, and, you know, it's a two-day course. I think he'd done the two-day thing with you, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, and sometimes on the second day, you don't always get people come back. So me and Jay used to kind of have bets on who wouldn't come back the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, and it was like, you know, whoever, you know, we, we, we guess and then we kind of like whoever loses buys the coffees. And I, I always got it right. I was like, that person ain't coming back, man. And, uh, and I, yeah, Jay owed me three or four coffees at one point. Um, but yeah, so yeah, and it was good. And you know, as you know, Jay Jay's sort of good at passing that information on as a little teacher. I just enjoyed it, and I obviously started doing more for Laughing Horse. 
And then um, I started doing my own ones in, in various places. And obviously I spoke to Jay because Jay and Laughing Horse do their course a certain way. Um, but they still use techniques that everyone would use. Um, yeah. So I said to Jay, well, you know, what what are you okay with me using and not using? So there's certain things about the connection talks that he does. I do that differently. I do certain things differently. I mean, the basis is aren't too different, but obviously Jay's got the things that he's written specifically. So I, I stay away from them. Uh, and yeah. I've worked into, you know, I can do the course, a, a one day intensive course. I can do two days. I can do it over a number of a period of time. So I've just tried to kind of adjust it and make it fun in my own way, really. And obviously I travel the world doing comedy shows. So I throw a load of stories in about things that have happened all over the world and stuff. So, yeah. That's one of the things we've got so lucky with because bless Jay, um, because when we set up project comedy, um, he turned around to us and said, right, here's a series of things that I will let you guys go away and train other veterans mm -hmm. to get them to um, get them into stand up. So they've got the basics with it's basically an ad to get them to go off and do the full course. That's exactly what we've done with Sean is we've taken him through some of the basics to get into that. What mm -hmm. are, and what have we noticed out of it for for the likes of myself, Gabe, and Jane? No, they haven't. <laughs> well, <laughs> one day we'll get you on the stage, Sean. One day we will actually get you on the stage, and you'll actually you know, oh. lose your virginity. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but one thing it's made us do is we now look at comedians in a completely different way. Because once you've actually shared these skills, you look at comedians in a different way, which is, you know, that's my attempt at a professional segue to ask my next question of okay. you, Nick. <laughs> um, when you now see open mic comedians, are there standard mistakes that they make as open micers? Or are there traps they fall into that you go, actually, if you lost some of that, you'd be a far more effective act? Well, yeah, I mean, I used to see that even before I did the courses, but I, I definitely see it a lot more now. <clears throat> and one of the things, obviously, I mean, you know, we teach about connection with the uh, audience uh, and then we teach the, 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 I mean, as you know, essentially it's like ways to come up with material and then editing that material. There's obviously bits and pieces of, of, of you know, how to connect with crowds. I tell a few more stories and do other different things. That's essentially it. But you see um, all the time and you open mics and you go, some of them you go, you either haven't done a course at all or you've listened to the wrong things or done the wrong course or say no names. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We all know of them. We all know of them. Good, excellent. Um, for example, I mean, there is there are a lot of acts that you see around this area that are a little bit, shall we say, formulaic. And at least you can go, well, you've listened to what you've been told, but you've almost forgotten to be yourself. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, but that's, you know, at least they've listened to what they've been, been been taught about the basics of how to do comedy. But then you do look at other people and you go, you've clearly, no one's ever told you how to edit your material, even in your head, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, like when you kind of like, also, it's not just, as you know, what you say, it's how you say it, it's performing so the material. Are you saying that the, the, the material they're bringing, it's too much setup, not a punchline or... Is it yeah, you? Know, they're not, they're of, not getting to the point of delivery. Yeah, they're, 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 there's too much exposition. There, there's too much setup, and also, like as you know, and you, you know, if you if you're gonna do a long setup, your punchline's got to be bloody good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, well, first of all, where is the punchline? And second of all, that was a long setup to to, to get there. Um, and you know, and also what I've noticed is they've got the words right, some of them. They've got the structure right, but they've not 
added that you know there's no attitude to it there's no performance it's like you've written you've written some quite good jokes there but you're not performing it you yeah. know and sometimes yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. No, i want to pull them to a sign and go pull them to the side and go look this is what you need to do i mean i don't sometimes people ask you for advice and i'm happy to mm-hmm. give it but i've certainly learned my lesson with regards to you know offering up advice when it might not be needed but you just see people making these basic mistakes or not and they're never going to improve unless they someone has a word to them or, or they have a word to themselves but yeah the basic I think that's a real there. challenge to a lot of veterans um gave chip in on this one because you know we all knew people in our oh, because because i've said issues. so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, shut up you know, gabe you talk too much <laughs> There was always a couple of people in your unit that were really, really funny. But then when you look back at it, you know, I look back at it now, (laughs) but it was normally shaggy dog stories. They were really, really, you know, really, really long stories for a very small punchline at the end. But it was, you know, often shocking or inappropriate or not politically correct. But we thought they were the funniest person in our unit. But actually taking that to the stage is a completely different thing. You, It's one thing to sit around in a barrack and make your mates laugh. It's very Mm. different to actually step to the stage. But just by learning a couple of tricks, you can use your military humor to actually become an effective stand-up. Have you you seen that with some of your students? They naturally thought they were funny because they've been telling these long-winded shaggy dog stories. And suddenly they realize, actually, it's a different technique to actually be an effective stand-up. I've um, I've not actually had any students. (laughs) No. For once, Gabe, I wasn't actually referring to you as our most senior instructor <laughs> oh, in the place. I was, <laughs> I was Sorry, talking I was to going, a professor. I was, I was just feeling a bit like Mark Hamill in like fucking episode fucking eight or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and be, bearing in mind you referred to me by fucking name. <laughs> <laughs> I said chip in. I said, I, but yeah. And then ask Nick a question, you dickhead. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with Gabe here. It's like, I just thought he's talking to Gabe, isn't he? Because he said, Gabe, chip in. Then he started saying, then asked a question. And I was like, is that to Gabe or is that to me? I, I don't know. I never pretended I was professional. Uh, yeah, well, I never well, pretended I'm professional. Typically locked up in a basement, mate, until, <laughs> until Stockholm Syndrome kicks in. <laughs> and then I kind of release them into the wild. <laughs> but you know, I mean, Nick might have a different view on things. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, with regards to the natural, I mean, it is. You do get some people that I mean, I've had a couple of Jack the Lads in, and they, they, you know, they get a bit. You know, you've got to sort of bring them back down to earth because they realise they're not as funny as they thought. But you have it in gigs as well. Someone's being really funny. I don't do it anymore for many good reasons, but I have got people up on stage. You know, in the past. And, you know, they're thinking they're Mr. Funny. You get them up and all they, the best they can do on stage is like some old racist or sexist joke. Because, you know, first of all, there's a difference between, you know, being funny. There is a difference between being funny down the pub with your mates and taking that and presenting it on stage as material. But also, yeah. which goes into the, the thing which we all say is, you know, the most important thing in, in live comedy and probably even life is connection, isn't it? Because if you're down the, the pub with your mates, you've got an instant connection with them and they're all having a bit of a laugh. On stage, they, they, there's no connection, is there? It's like you've got to win them over and you've got to win them over with some well-structured and presentable and well and confident comedy. So, you know, it's totally different. Are there any particular signs when you're looking at an open micer that makes you go, this guy's got something? When do you look at an open mic and go, they're going to go places or they got something that could be built upon? Um, 
with the open mics, I mean, sometimes you can see they've got a natural presence and they're really comfortable on stage and they've got good jokes. I mean, they've, they've, no one's good when they first, no one's great when they first start. But one thing I always say about um, newer comedians is if they haven't got the ability to go away and improve, like some of them are, you know, you know, I've, I've seen basically comedians over the years that have been crap when they first started. And you see them 10 years later and they've got really good. And then you've got other acts that have been really good and they've given up, you know, cause you've really got to put the time in to sort of like yeah. analyzing what it is you're doing and what you're not doing, putting the effort in obviously. Cause you know, once you get out on that circuit after getting that initial confidence and the tools with which to work, it can be, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard out there um, to do that. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think the ones that are never going to really make it are the ones that haven't got the ability to kind of go, how do I need to improve? You know, they don't listen, right. yeah, they yeah. don't, you know, check themselves and they just carry on making the same mistakes. That self-reflection of what yeah, they've just done. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, before we go to the break then, here's a, here's a loaded question for you. Because you man. came and saw us do uh, Gags Army when we did the Brighton Fringe Festival. Yeah. and. Yeah, we knew of you, but you had never encountered us. When you came and saw Gag's Army, what mm -hmm. did you actually think of that show? I was actually, the first thing I noticed and I was really impressed with was how different the three of you were. Because especially if you've got three newer acts who've all done a course together, it would be so easy for them to be quite similar. And I've seen people do yeah. this, like yeah. at um, fringe shows. There's like two-handers, three-handers. And they're all like these, they're very similar styles. They look very similar um, whereas you guys all look different. You know, you're looking a bit like Joe Wilkerson now with your beard. Um, Thank you very much, sir. I'll Zangief. take that as a compliment. <laughs> Zangief is still Zangief. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and obviously Jamie was like, in his suit doing puns, but like you were sort of like a lot more sort of like storytelling observation. Obviously Gabe Zangief was, you know, he's like, you know, he's sort of quite a bit more, quite chatty, more so, sort of chatty than Jamie, but it's sort of like sort of some dark, edgy stuff. And then Jamie was like in the suit with the the gags, you know, and the one-liners. Um, but it was, yeah, so it was, it was, it was immediately struck and, and impressed by how different the styles were. And obviously there's, you look at and go, obviously there's newer acts, you know, you've got to improve. The good thing about it was, because I've met you, that the, the, I think was that 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 afternoon, and I came and yeah. saw you the next night, didn't I? As well, because obviously they cut you short. Jay did his two minute headline. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> that was funny. That's because of my uh, improv improv fifteen minute crowd set. <laughs> well, there is that, but also the fact that the uh, the security and bar staff cut. Oh yeah, yeah, fucked it up. So, yeah, two minutes off you go, Jay. See you later, mate. But. <laughs> But yeah, so, so but but because I'd sort of chatted to you earlier, I mean, again we had that connection. Um, so immediately I know you. I want you to do well, obviously. But even uh, aside from from that, it was just that kind of, you know, just the, just the differences in your styles, uh, and all all your styles were polished in their own own ways, uh, and all seemed quite confident. Jamie seemed to lack a little bit more confidence because it was like in, in lack of confidence because, you know, it was quite gags and it, 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 it was you two kind of were a bit more energetic and lively and obviously, yeah. you know, uh, Zangief uh, and his uh, edgy material. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I just, I, yeah, I immediately thought it was great that you all, all had different styles. That was what immediately struck me about it. Brilliant. Well, in that case, it's a perfect time for us to give a quick link out then to tell people, how they could join Project Comedy.
would you like to join Project Comedy? The reality is, it couldn't be much simpler. All you have to do is get on the internet and find your way over to the Project Recce website. That's Project, yeah, the word Project Recce, as in R-E-C-C-E dot org, O-R-G. Have a look in the upper right-hand corner, click on the menu, and click on Project Comedy. Scroll down there a bit, and you'll find a link that says Apply Now. That will send an email to one of our ambassadors. If you're even more bored, scroll down a little further, and you'll actually see a couple of our ambassadors making tits of themselves on the stand-up comedy stage. Nonetheless, just click on the link, get in contact, and you can be as funny as you want to be. So, so when you guys, well, this is actually a question for all of you, because like, because you've done comedy for a bit, when you're actually watching comedy uh, acts or gigs and uh, or people trying it out either for the first time or have done it for a while, do you sort of like start viewing their material as material rather than just, oh, this is somebody just telling a funny story, like a casual, like, like me would sort of just be like, oh, well, this is really good and get hooked and enjoy it. Do you kind of sit and just go, Hmm, I see what he did there. Or, oh, that's interesting. Do you sort of, has your mentality changed from like the first time you started to sort of now, really, is the question, on how you view said material? Who's going to take this one then? Shall I go first? You start <laughs> off, Nick. Okay. Well, I suppose how you view, well, if I'm honest, when I'm like doing, because obviously I run a load of shows at the Edinburgh Fringe and whatnot, and you know, going from show to show, I, I don't always watch comedians as much. Certainly the ones not doing my show, because I know kind of who does what, and even the new acts. Sometimes I watch the newer acts, or ones that I've never seen before, I pay a lot more attention, just, you know, because I do want to book them again, whatever. But generally, I just kind of like, this is going to sound a bit wank now, but I just kind of like more feel the energy. And if like, so it's a bit like, and here's go back to another tube analogy, and apparently this is true. I've never been a tube driver. I've been on the front of trains, but apparently like tube drivers don't see green signals they only see red signals because like they don't mm. need to do anything if they see a green so you see a red oh god stop right and i'm a bit like that in many ways when i i, I run my own shows um especially if it's like a, a fast moving show because it's like i feel the energy's going well if the energy starts to go weird okay now i'm paying attention do you know what i mean so uh but when it and that's like when I run my shows in Edinburgh, but when I, especially new at nights, I tend to pay attention a lot more because I don't always see as many, if I pop into like a, an open mic night in say in Brighton or London or whatever, I pay attention. And the reason I'll tell you why I pay more attention is not because I'm like watching, you know, where they're making mistakes or whatnot. It's because, and you've probably seen this so many times when you get professional comedians on the circuit, they tend to, once they've got a set that works, they tend to do it again. You can, because it's like most people don't come to comedy again and again, and you'll be all around the country. It's it's highly unlikely that people will see you again and again. If you want to go to fringes and stuff, you want to build up a fan base, change your material. But sometimes you get caught up in doing a lot of the same material and you're getting paid to do a job, so you don't want to keep trying new material. I'm pissed about some new material sometimes, especially as MC. What I like about watching newer acts is you kind of, it reminds you of being a newer act. And we all had to come up with new material at some point. And it's like, again, watching the process of like, well, they can think of all these new things. Why can't 
a lot more professional comedians think of new things. Do you know what I mean? So it's that, you know, getting away from what you know work. We all got the, you know, like you said, you get to a five, 10, 20, bankable 20 minutes, you can get paid. You, you're a good MC, you can get paid. And when you could MC, you can try out new material. But I, I just, it's always impressive watching new acts. And obviously they make dreadful mistakes because they haven't got the skills yet and they make silly mistakes. But it's impressive how they come up with new material because that they have to. Whereas when you're getting paid and you know and you're doing you don't have to do new material all the time. Whereas new acts have to keep coming up with new material to build up their 20. And so I really pay attention to those. And so you see the mistakes, um, but I'm more kind of going, oh, that's a good idea you've come up with there. I'll have that. <laughs> I, I tell you what, yeah, I mean, some people probably do do that. But I'm just not always impressed that, you know, they, 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 they come up with these new ideas. And especially given that, you know, comedy's changed over the years and things are a little bit more politically correct now. So it's working ways around all of that. But, yeah, that's what I, that's what I do when I watch uh, newer acts. When I watch, like, uh, professional acts, so I do my own shows. It's like, well, a lot of them do a similar stuff anyway. What about you, Gabe? What do you see? I see what I'm looking at. <laughs> I love the fact that you're so invested. You put so much into the science behind it. I was, so, I was just thinking he was going to say, beard. I see dead people. That's what I thought he was going to say. <laughs> yeah, mate, I am Titanic and Sixth Sense all rolled into one. <laughs> I see dead people and I just see dead people all the time. <laughs> it's because no, he's a um, serial killer. It's because he's a serial killer. I've seen a lot of dead people in my audiences, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like um I suppose I I I like to I like to see people sort of like pushing the boundary a little bit. Mm. I mean, yeah, shock. <laughs> I'm yeah. the kind of guy I'm yeah, the kind of guy like, picks up a girl picks up a girl in the night and you're in the nightclub and says, Ah, do you fancy a little bump on? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just like I just like to see where the boundaries are, and then mm. I, I like you know I go I go I kind of play within the court that I'm allowed to be in, but um, I like I like I like people who push the sort of boundary a bit. But uh, yeah, I, lo- I love I love seeing I love seeing people like push the boundary a little bit, whether it's whether it's just through material or whether it's like through an avenue, I, I like, I like seeing people go in a different, a different way. There was a, a young kid I saw who um, deadpanned everything, and I think deadpanning, deadpanning stuff is really cool. And yeah. then um, one of his big setups was like when he slaps the mic. You know that was a big setup, and then he bang, he slapped the mic. And everyone laughed at him slapping the mic because we knew <laughs> something coming up was going to be amazing. It was, re- it was really good. I suppose the thing I look for in that, because uh, Jay did warn us when we were doing our course, after you've done the course, you see comedy in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see it necessarily different at the moment. It's <clears throat> I see it differently in reflection. What I look when I'm watching the act is I'm looking at the performance. Mm-hmm. And... There is something about performing when you know they're comfortable on stage. That is something, you know, they're not overtly worried. It is that confidence up there. They're going through their material. Um, 
But then it's secondly, I think it, I, that was drummed into us by Jay again, is you're actually watching the audience's reaction. Because I'll tell a joke, no, that's not going to land. Bang, suddenly there's a big laugh in the room and I'm there going, they've got a different take. Oh, wow. And then you will use the common terms that we're used to. Or, oh, that was that was such a nice, tidy little setup. Really short, really high punchline rate. Oh, they did some callbacks there. They did a full drop. Or you know the technical terms for it. But when I'm actually watching the act performing, it is the performance I look at most. Going, that's how they're getting this room to get behind them. Hmm. Just quickly, did I answer the question properly, or did I completely fuck it up? No, I think you answered it because you know, and that's something about your style of comedy, isn't it, Gabe? Because you well, completely it fucking it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way: there's, there's normally a line in the sand. You've never even seen the fucking sand. You're at the top of the fucking mountain, looking down, going, "Oh no, no, no! This is acceptable." I would go into. And we're not going to use it in this podcast episode but there is one title of a podcast episode you want us to record that we are never recording you don't know where the pigging line is incidentally nick there's been one joke uh that i said that got deleted from a podcast because <laughs> i can't hear it then no i said um guinness i said guinness zero alcohol is kind of like eating out your sister it tastes the same, but it's wrong. <laughs> and that's a call out to Jeff Jones when you listen to this episode. We've actually used the gag in the podcast. Uh, <laughs> <Are we>? <laughs> <laughs> ah, sick. Nick, um, why would you recommend somebody to get into stand-up comedy? Is there a single reason or... Is there a benefit you can get out from doing stand-up comedy? Um, I think there's a number of benefits you can get out of <clears throat> doing stand-up comedy. Um, there's not one reason I'd say for anyone to do it. I do think, I mean, there are people that would that got no desire to do it. They're never going to do it. But I think mm. it'd be good for everyone to try it because it's just something to just that's good to try. Um, and, and there's so many things you can get out of it, which is one of the things that, uh, that struck me um, by, you know, when I started doing the courses was because I thought everyone that did a comedy course wanted to be a comedian, but they don't. I'd, I'd probably say about a mm -hmm. third of mm -hmm. people that, are, that, I've, that have done the Laughing Horse courses on my courses actually want to be comedians. A lot of uh, people do it because I know it's for, to help build confidence. It might help with work presentations um, uh, because, you know, it's like because it's a bucket list thing um, and, and mate dared them to do it. So many reasons that people do it but um but i would say yeah you can get confidence out of it you can there's you know, so many different things you know getting over fears and you know boosting your self-esteem so many so many reasons to do it i mean obviously you do see some people after courses or after doing a number of new act nights that you do think all right it's time to call it a day now mate <laughs> but, <laughs> and, and i'd never i'd never tell anyone to give up or not to do it but there are some people you go you don't have that wherewithal or that analytical brain to work out how to get better and like mm -hmm. i mean jay's got this thing like oh you can teach anyone to be a comedian well you can teach people the basics of, of comedy i slightly disagree with with jay with regards you can teach anyone to be a comedian i think you can teach them how to be a comedian you can give them the tools uh and you can give them the confidence to get on stage 
but can you turn them into a comedian? I don't know. You can like you can teach someone a magic trick, but they've still got to put the time into perfecting that magic yeah. trick. Um, and comedy is not too dissimilar, but I think that there has to be, you know, you've got to learn how to perform. You've got to have a bit of personality and, and a successful magician will have more personality as well. But so, but like we, we and Jay say, you can teach anyone the basics of comedy, how to get up there. But I say to people, I can't, I can teach you how to drive a car, but I, I can't make, make you win the F1. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But yeah, I, yeah, yeah. but I can, you know, so the basics are there and give people the confidence and there's so many things they can get out of it. You know, you you all got a lot out of it, it seems. So, um, so Nick, 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 ultimately, like, what can you tell Jay to do to be more funny? Be, be, be <laughs> more like the head off for a start. <laughs> oh, and I thought we were talking about Jay Sodergar for a second. Fucking oh, hell. Oh, no. <laughs> no, because no, he, he may have been talking about Jay Sodergar, but there's no way Jay Sodergar is getting any better. It's not happening. Mate. <laughs> if, if there was a report, if there was a report in Gosport for a nonce about your your <laughs> top of the pile, <laughs> yeah, definitely, mate. You know, you've you've gone from being wish version of oh the wish version of oh what was his name? Uh, I know. Christopher Walken. <laughs> Christopher Walken, the wish uh, version yeah. of Christopher Walken. You've gone from you've gone from wish Christopher Walken to. Number one nonce. Number. Listen. Oh, can I tell you a story about nonces? Oh, yeah. Gable love this. <laughs> so, listen. listen now. Here's the thing, right? I would like to pre-add. I do not condone nonsense. <laughs> no, he just partakes. <laughs> just partake. Yeah, I don't, I don't condone it. No. I do it. I do it. I just don't condone no, it. I don't. I fucking hate kids. <laughs> Shit. <It's> stupid. <laughs> Project Comedy would like to announce we are not sponsored by the Pedophile Alliance. Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> but listen, this is the dangers of, I mean, look, we all know it's jokes. Again, how you take jokes and what's behind jokes. Anyway, so listen, <clears throat> I did this gig in Margate in this theatre, apparently the second oldest theatre in the country. Can't remember the name of it, right? And I was with a, a, a chap by the name of Ian Franklin at the time. He used to have a thing called Comic Voice Management. And he was my manager. Anyway, so I did the gig and I think I was I was on with Susan Murray and Richard Morton. And I think I'm pretty, yeah, I was MC and Susan Murray went on first. Anyway, so there was only about 90 people in. It held about 360, this theatre, right? But there were a nice 90 people all near the front in the middle. And Susan Murray goes on. She's a very, very good comedian. And this guy, I'd found out this guy, or she did, there was these four or five guys. One of them's names was name was Nick, and he was a carpet fitter. And he started heckling Susan Murray, right? And Susan Murray's got this sort of, she's got, got Brummie accent, Scottish heritage, Brummie accent, and she's not someone to trifle with, so she fucking had him, right? She had him, this bastard, right? Anyway, but then I go back as MCS, and so I had to go at him. There was a break. I came back after the break and thought, right, I'm going for this Nick, right? So I went for him. And they were all a bit of a laugh. He was heckling at their fun, right? And then, so because we're having a bit of banter, his mate, chipped in nick's mate they're all sort of like mid to late 40s these guys go oh also he's a carpet fitter by trade but he's also he's a scout master right a scout leader so exactly so in my head i know there's two things two routes i can go down i used to be in the scouts and i've got some stories about being a scout or i know that what they're trying to do is insinuate that he's a pedophile and i'm gonna have a go at them about that so which route did I take? Obviously. So I said, 
Oh, so you say scout leader, but what you really mean is paedophile, right? So, and everyone's in it. Everyone's, <laughs> everyone's having a laugh. Like Nick, the carpet fitter, pedo scout leader, he's having a laugh because that's what his mates, what they've obviously taken the piss out of him about it, right? So I'm telling about the pedo thing. It became this whole thing, Nick the pedo, right? And it was like, everyone's in on it. It's a bit of a laugh. Everyone knows it's a laugh. He's fine with it, right? A few days later after the gig, I get an email from my agent going that Will, the... um the manager of the theatre has messaged him to, to ask for an apology, right? Um, for actually, no, it was about it was about three weeks after the gig, an apology for what I said. He goes, he rings me up and he goes, uh, did you uh, did you uh, call uh, one of the guys in the audience in Margate? And I knew where he was going, and I was like, <laughs> goes, what, a, a paedophile. I went, uh, yeah. And he said, oh, it's just that this Will's been in touch to say, like, check this. Apparently, I still think that it's maybe a bit of a wind-up. I don't know. But apparently, everyone in the theatre, because Margate's quite a small town, right? So everyone in the theatre has either seen him on the street or in the bar in the bars, and they, oh, they oh say, hey, it's Nick the pedo, Nick the pedo, right? And everyone's a bit of a joke. But there are people that weren't at the gig that are taking this shit seriously. And he's oh, been no. getting, like, phone calls to his work in the middle of the night calling him a pedo. He's actually had to give up being a scout leader because people are calling him a pedo. And, like, my agent said, <laughs> he's had a really tough time of it. And he's, he, his business is suffering. And it's also because you called him a pedo. And I'm like, it was just a joke. His mates wanted me to say it. And in the end, I had to ring up another comedian friend who was actually a lawyer. And he said, look, he goes, you don't have to have any worries about it. It was in a comedy environment. It's not like if you apologise, he can sue you. So I did. I sent a letter of an apology. But apparently calling him this pedo and people was like, it really affected his life in my <laughs> Bloody hell. I still I, think they might have been winding me up, but I, it was serious. No, time, it was personally, serious I think thing. that's what you get for living in Margate. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a bit like Gosport. It's a very shallow gene pool. It's like... To be yeah, fair, I mean, he's I a carpenter, so he'll have a white van. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I yeah. mean, if he walks around going like, hey, I've got some Haribo here. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was i mean it's all fun and games like we i laughed about it at the time and i laugh about it now but it just goes to show you that like some of the things on you say on stage can affect Ooh. people's lives man <laughs> still yeah, shocking. don't fucking heckle then if somebody wanted to get into stand-up where would you recommend they got into it nick well i suppose the thing about it is as well it's hard it's where you live as well isn't it because if you live in london or manchester or brighton or edinburgh or glasgow there's always loads and loads of gigs open mic gigs to do isn't there um which is good but see i'd, I'd complain about that like because i think manchester's so big now mm -hmm. like i'm struggling to get an open mic night but jamie who has only just fucking turned up <laughs> um, who lives in a shithole would think that you know it's it's a grand place to get uh, yeah. free night. however for me manchester it is i'm struggling to find anywhere to get my foot in okay because i think well that's the thing you've got to travel basically it's just a case of getting to as many open mic nights as you can i mean comedy courses are a good place to start and i only do the beginners courses i don't do advanced or intermediate because i just think once you've got the tools and the confidence to get up on stage then, you know, you talk to people at gigs, they'll give you advice that, you know, just do as many gigs as you can. So 
I would just say wherever you live, it's, and it's I've got friends that live out in like Devon and Cornwall and they have some gigs down there. But if you don't live somewhere where there's loads of open mic nights, you're going to have to travel. And that's the thing. Just just turn up, get the gigs, do the gigs, um, ask advice, do a course if you can, uh, and then just get out there and gig. It's, it's great for uh, on the on the job training, so to speak. Just get out there and do as many gigs as you can. I mean, I'm going to throw a question to our participants, you know, us lot rather than you, Nick. Um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned it um, a little earlier about the transferable skills, um, and especially because we've got the range of experience in here. Jamie, when you actually look at what stand-up has given you, what transferable skills has stand-up given you? Because you haven't given up the day job. You're not a professional comedian yet, but you you really enjoy getting out there and performing. What uh, what transferable skills has doing comedy over the last couple of years given you? Well, Nick, Nick hello, everybody. Nick touched on it just then. So, sort of, um, like, presentations I can do at work now a lot better than I used to, which give me more confidence to, to talk in in groups and um to me to me managers. Um if I'm going for interviews for other roles in the company, I, it, I'm 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 quite happy doing that. Um unfortunately me being a me having a a, a, a an air quotes real job at the minute, you know, I have to cope with real life and, and comedy's helped. You know, um, also it's, it's kind of turned on my comedy brain a little bit. So if, if, if any situation goes on at work, I can quite often find find the funny in it. Whereas before, um, I might not have done it. Just it just made me more in tune with with um, with getting getting the most out of of humour, really. Because you can turn, you can de-stress those moments by introducing a bit of humor in real life because we've now yeah. got the comedy brain of oh actually this may sound really sad and dark and what have you here's a chance for i can lift the move and move on a bit because the comedy brain goes oh that's a setup i'm going to use that and then actually get us through that moment 100 percent, yeah gabe what, what sort of transferable skills have you gained from from stand-up comedy i'm not i'm not so f- sure about transferable skills as opposed to experience really um i think uh i use what i've gone through as a way to sort of help with my recovery Mm -hmm. uh dealing with all the issues that i've got going on um for instance the um the suicidal joke that I do. I mean, nobody thinks that suicidal is funny, but when I say that, yeah. the army's idea of like helping you with a suicide was a sturdy bar in your wardrobe. Yep, I love that joke. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I I love it too. But equally, it's a homage to my best friend who I actually found hung yep. up in his wardrobe. Um, I honestly really, really think that it if you can laugh about stuff and if you can make people laugh about the stuff that is the most darkest of, of, of journeys that you've gone through, then surely that's a good thing. 
How about you, Sean? I mean, seeing as you're a newbie into it, have you found anything that uh, just by learning the skills you've ended up going, actually, yeah, this has been useful to me? You think you're so fucking slacky bringing this up, you motherfucker. I mean, by this sort of like, apart from having like a creative outlet, it is to like sort of go and do some confidence and also kind of just tick it off the bucket list and things sort of like Nick sort of said I'd seen with other people anyway. Um, as far as skills go, I've always, before I did this, I was trying to make jokes out of everything, mainly just to deal with the abject misery of having PTSD. But the, um, as far as transferable skills, I, I can try and filter stuff a little bit better um, already, but not much, but a little bit as it gets get there i just got to work on it but um i think once i start doing a gig or do my first gig and start trying to refine and process and do a lot of this stuff i think i'll start picking up a bit more and be able to answer that question a little bit better to be honest yeah, um yeah. but as far as transferable i mean if there's a transferry with some skills listening um don't contact me but yeah <laughs> um... <laughs> i mean for myself it's i'm going to echo what what gabe said the biggest power that i've gained from doing stand-up comedy is we know what it's like with ptsd and mental health issues and what have you the darkness can descend on you so rapidly but actually having a comedy skill set you can turn the darkness into funny that's something so joyous about the writing process because when you're having a dark moment you can open up your laptop start chucking this down and go if it's not funny throw it off the page and suddenly you can lift your own mood in a really, really dark moment to go, right, what I've just written there is it's dark, it's horrible. Where's the funny? Right, now delete the stuff that isn't funny. And you can end up taking your darkness and turning it into humor for your own internal mental health. Mm -hmm. And we've got that, we've got that little cliche we sometimes do on the um, on the project recce courses. I turn around to somebody and go, if you can stand in the corner of the pub and make somebody laugh for five minutes long because of something you've written how easy will it be for you to go in and do a job interview you're standing pretty much naked in the corner of a pub with a microphone making people laugh solidly for five minutes long all you're doing is selling yourself in a job interview it's easier to do a job interview than a five minute set that's instantly a skill set is this true for you Dave? did you find the did you find that you had real sort of like short-term memory issues and i found that by learning my set I've actually increased my ability to deal with short-term memory. Hey, I've got short-term, medium-term, long-term memory issues. But, <laughs> um, I, on I honestly think that uh, if, if it gives us like the strength again to go up and, and be as exposed as we are on stage, um, I mean, not you know, physically, I mean, metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I would be exposed on stage if you want me to be. Uh, no, thanks, and... mate. We see, we've all seen it. We've all seen it. All depends on how much you want to pay me. <laughs> but no, um... There's only so many times you can see a button mushroom. I mean... <laughs> the next stage is to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the only trouble is it's got pus dribbling out the end of it. <laughs> It was cold, and I told you I had an infection. <laughs> <laughs> Adds to the flavour. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Cheers, Sean. 
Thanks for backing me up there. It was very salty. I think any anything that gives people anything anyone that has an an anxiety issue or a self confidence issue whilst being on stage seems like the most uh, like exorbitant thing to do. I honestly think it is the best thing yeah. because going up there with material that you know is funny and you've done and we you know we recycle between ourselves i honestly think it's the best thing for you to help help it get in that um healing process and get that confidence back up within yourself and i think when you back yourself i think that's the best thing that you'll ever do Mm. It, it nicely links me back across to you then, Nick. If, right, so so you've met us, uh, guys, mm -hmm. and what have you. Do you think there's... It's a two-parter question, if you like. Do you think there is a place for veterans on the stand-up <clears throat> circuit? Oh, I mean, are we actually definitely. a relevant bunch of people? Oh, definitely. Without, without a doubt, you've got proper stories to tell for a start. Not like a lot of these people that get on stage and they talk about their issues in life and they're moaning about this and that. And, you know, a lot of it isn't actually... A hell of hell of a lot of funny stuff, but you've got proper stories to tell. Proper, you know, tragedies have happened in your in your life, you know. Um, and as the old saying goes, comedy is tragedy plus time. And you know, and it's, it's a, a good example is a bit like when comedians get together. We're not talking about the the, the success stories, the great gigs. We talk about the shit gigs, the shit gigs that when you did, yeah. you felt like fuck me this is terrible man dying on stage it's horrendous but they're still the stories you tell later on but no one no one wants to the audiences and the comedians don't want to hear about the great gigs they want to hear about the shit gigs man and you know so and they want to hear about the the, the terrible things that have happened and and if you guys can take the terrible things that you've seen and that have happened to you and make them funny i mean immediately people are going to listen anyway like look this happened and whatever then you can turn that and not only just turn it into jokes but actually show people you can get over the things that you've been through. I think that that makes for great comedy. And, and I think certainly like I, I touched on a little bit a couple of minutes ago, you've got people that go on stage and they're talking about well, this and all oh, this happened in my life. And imagine then you get followed by one of you guys and you tell some proper stories of like, it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're fucking what you think is, is bad in your life. Ain't nothing compared to what some people have been like. And, and so I think from that point of view, the things you've got to say, but also because it's a relevant thing, comedy to, to to help people get over the things you've been through. And as like Gabe said, to turn it into, into jokes and, and that does help. And I think that's lost on the, on the circuit these days that people are talking about things to, to get them through the day, to help them understand, you know, um, rather than just going, Oh, you shouldn't say that. You can't say that. You can't joke about that. It's like, yeah, you can, you can joke about anything. You can't joke about it to yeah. anybody. Um, but you should be able to joke about anything. And you guys have definitely got things to say, you know, and I think it's totally relevant from your point of view and from the point of view of the circuit itself. <laughs> I think some veterans, especially you know, the likes of us that got things like psychiatric disabilities or mental health issues would think, well, maybe that's too much of a barrier, but I'm sh you know, just from my limited time on the circuit, um, I've encountered so many people with various forms of disability that have ended up becoming very, very successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, you must have seen as well, Nick. It's you know just because you do you do have mental health issues or a psychiatric disability, it's not a 
a barrier to becoming a comedian, is it? No, no, it's not. I think it, it helps, you know, because you've got you've actually got something to talk about, you know, and and I, and I think that that you guys uh, and the people that you know should definitely, you know, do more gigs, start doing gigs, and I think it's it's a great way of. You know, because I know that from some of the things that I'm involved with, with some charity stuff, which I won't go into too much, and other things with regard to other people that I know have done things, comedy is a good way to get over, you know, mental health issues. And I'm actually um, working on some stuff with um, people over this way um, to maybe start up some some more workshops and more charitable things uh, to encourage people to not necessarily just get into comedy, but but to do that, but also to use comedy, um, you know, to actually do it and get over some of your stuff, but also go and watch it, go and, and see it performed and using comedy as a way to help people get through and over mental health issues. I mean, it's something that's made me quite excited recently. I mean, obviously, Project Comedy, that started during the lockdowns of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was supposed to be a short term thing. And here we still are. Here we are, early 2024. And Project Comedy still running. I'm really grateful to see that there's loads of other comedy projects breaking out around the uk um battleback ran a comedy for recovery course Mm -hmm. um there's also been op courage unfortunately op courage are only running this in london they've got a stand-up comedy course going there to help out with with those sort of elements you to use comedy for your recovery and have a great time but um before we end up wrapping things up if you were to give a tip to a new comedian or an improving comedian, what tips would you give them or what piece of resilience would you recommend they have? I would personally say go up and give someone a massive hug (laughs) and uh, tell them that they're going to be fucking sound. <laughs> the only so the you next... give people hugs. The only sound is cracking ribs. That's the only sound. <laughs> you <ever hear>. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking burr. <laughs> Thank you, Rogers and Rary. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's it, it's odd. I just think it's a case of it is. I mean, to you know, to you know, to think of a slogan of a of a famous sports work. I mean, just do it. You just got to get up there and. You know, um, go out there, just get up there and talk to people, do gigs, do courses. Get sorry, and- sorry, Nick, I think that was Shia LaBeouf that said, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> I, uh, coincidentally, I have a shirt that says, no, you do it. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. Shia LaBeouf, what a guy. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh. But, yeah, um, yeah, it's just a case of, because again, I I took years to from when I had the idea to do it, and then um, you know getting up and doing it. You know, it's like I wish I'd have done it a bit sooner. But you start when you start. And I mean, even now, post I mean, post COVID, it's like I've, I, my attitude towards a lot of things in comedy post COVID has changed, and that affected people in so many ways. And I still have. I've never been really an anxious person. But I get weirdly slightly anxious a bit more about comedy and stuff, and. It took a while to get back into it because I got to the stage where I was totally confident I was funny. And, you know, you get bad gigs, good gigs. But then, you know, when you've got like two two couple of years of not being able to gig and then having to get back into it and it was all weird with, so, with social you know, distancing and all that. But, yeah, it's it's but, you know, you've just got to get up there and do it, haven't you? And I just think you've got to get out there and, and not every, it's not for everyone. 
but I would encourage everyone to give it a go. And I think for for guys like yourself and other other people like yourselves that have you know got the PTSD stuff and which I you know I can't even begin to understand what you guys have been through, but other people with mental health issues, you know, uh, get up there and 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 try and do it. Although if I mean, I've seen some people that stand-up comedy just isn't for them. You can see that it's not helping with their mental health. And you get people going, no, you keep going, keep going. It's like if if comedy in itself is causing people emotional and you know psychological distress, don't do it. It's like yeah. encouraging <laughs> someone with a broken leg to play football. It's like, no, don't do it. But I think <laughs> comedy is a good way to help get over some of the things that you and other people have been through and continue to go through. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Mate, um, is there, have you got any upcoming gigs that we could come and support you mm. at? Or have you got any channels on social media we can follow you at? Channels on social media. Well, you know what? I've never really got into TikTok. I looked at it once about three years, four years ago, and I thought, oh, fuck that. But I, I do think I should get more into it. I just do the usual, uh, you know, Facebook. Nick Copping Comedy is my Facebook page. Obviously, there's Twitter. Well, X now, isn't it? X. Uh, Nick Coppin, <laughs> at Nick Coppin, and then Instagram, usual, just that sort of stuff. I should post more, and obviously my website's nickcoppin.com. But upcoming gigs, uh, well, I'm off to well, I'm off to Australia and Asia in a, about three weeks, so I don't think any of you are going to turn up there. But well, um, <laughs> hey, I will go to Asia. It's not a fucking problem. <laughs> That's good. Well, you get on my website and look at the Asia, Australia and Asia dates, mate. But also, I'm that gig you came and watched me do with uh, Uncle Jim. In uh, October, I think it was. I'm doing that it with was. Bobby Davro in June. So maybe you should come down and do a spot, mate. <clears throat> oh, I'd love you. If you gave me the opportunity, you'd know I'd fucking take it up. You know uh, I'd take well, it I'll, up. Well, I'll give you details. But uh, any of that are yeah, in Yeah, he's going to fuck you off and he's going to rough me a bit. You look like a bogan. <laughs> but obviously I'm doing I'm doing the Brighton you do look like a bogan actually to be fair but, um, I'm doing the... <laughs> yeah get the baseball cap on you do actually you actually do look a lot like minus the baseball cap the guy that was at a gig in at, well you get a lot of bogans with you know the car race weekend they've got this big car race weekend they used to have and uh, and there was one guy who did look a bit like you, Gabe. He had a baseball cap on, and he had proper Aussie bogan like You know, he had a singlet on. Oh, bogan. Sat in the middle of the room. Anyway, I used to do this bit. Um, it was basically questioning people's views on ladyboys in Thailand and trans thing. Well, it's quite pro-trans if people listen properly, but it was more about uh, a thing about ladyboys in Thailand and people think they're, they're a bit odd, but they're great fun, right? Anyway, I used to challenge people as to, would you rather go to this person with a, a cock or this person with a vagina, you know, a good-looking woman? Anyway, it was all about trying to get someone to admit they'd rather go out with someone like Angelina Jolie with a cock or Harold Bishop Neighbours with a vagina, right? So that was the question. <laughs> this was, and there was loads of, loads of scenarios I would give them and I'd ask them questions because it was all about, does it really matter as long as you love someone, right? That was the, the but you'd always pick on the biggest, hardest <laughs> guy in the room or someone with a girlfriend. Anyway, this one guy, again, you've reminded me of it, big bushy beard, baseball cap on, Holden baseball cap. So that was like Holden versus Ford and all that. Holden's Australia's version of Vauxhall. Anyway, so you sat in the middle of the room like this, right? So I said, look, I picked on this guy. I said, come on, mate, come on. Would you rather, right, have like your partner be Angelina Jolie with a cock or Harold Bishop from Neighbours with a vagina, right? Now, usually people would squirm and I'd put, give them weird scenarios. But this guy just sat there and he went, I'd rather have Angelina Jolie 
with my fucking cock. No, <laughs> 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 I was like, fair play. Uh, <laughs> and anyway, but he looked he looked a lot like you, weirdly, Gabe. That that was what reminded me of the story. <laughs> well, thank uh, you for that. <laughs> welcome anytime. But of course, I'm doing the Brighton Fringe again next year. So if anyone's around Brighton, you know, come and do come and do some spots at a couple of the shows in Brighton if you're around that I'm putting on. That would be absolutely amazing, gentlemen. Yeah. This has been an absolutely amazing okay. evening. Um, Hopefully, it's going to encourage not only the veteran community, but any of our listeners to go, you know, give Stand Up a go. It's actually worth it. And there is a route to success. More importantly, you can get out there and have a lot of great fun. Uh, first and foremost, I've got to thank my regular guests um, within the podcast. So thanks very much, Jamie, Gabe and Sean. Thank you. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> And Nick, you've been an absolute delight. Please follow him. We'll try and put the hyperlinks into his uh, social media accounts on the podcast episode. Nick, you've been an absolute delight. It's been brilliant, mate. It's been fun, mate. It's been great, great, great laugh. Hopefully we can do it again soon sometime. So in a fortnight's time, there will be another episode of the Project Comedy Podcast. So until next time. If you want to see what we're actually like on stage, please have a look at our YouTube channel. Search for Project Comedy, Veterans Doing Stand-Up, and look for our black and white logo that's exactly the same as the one we use for this podcast. You can also now follow us on Twitter. We can be found at Proj Comedy. That's at P-R-O-J Comedy. And me, Jay Saunders. I can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you look for Comic Jay Saunders. That's all one word with the letter J in the middle. Comic Jay Saunders. Thanks again to everyone that's taken part in this episode. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Project Comedy Podcast. Please support our veterans as they continue their comedy journeys. To find out more, including gigs our veterans are doing, please search for the Project Comedy group on Facebook, where you'll also find links to Project Recce, the veterans charity that makes Project Comedy possible.